Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we launch weird and wonderful science from your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special edition, we're revisiting space from the past to prepare for the future. Looking at Dark Matter from 2007 and NASA's plans for Mars from 2008, which might be on track. In preparation for next week's interview about 21st century spacesuits. I spoke with Professor Joe Silk, Director of the Beecroft Institute for Particle Astrophysics and Cosmology at the University of Oxford, about dark matter and the cosmos. Astronomy is about things that are bright or shiny. What's interesting about stuff that's neither? So the problem is that when we study the stuff that's bright and shiny, we infer from our studies that there's ten times as much that is invisible. And we call this dark matter. And we know it's there just from studying the properties of the stars that we see and their distribution around the Milky Way, for example. So what we see in the sky doesn't really explain what we see in the sky. There's something else going on. Exactly. And this dominant form of matter in the universe is critical because, you know, it's like you can't expect the tail to wag the dog, right? Mm. So uh, it's the dominant form of matter that controls eventually how the stars are formed, and we have to understand that. Some of the evidence for this dark matter, is it what things like the large-scale structure of the universe? Right. So the best evidence, and the first evidence, really, came from studying clusters of galaxies. And this mm-hmm. was realized in the 1930s by a remarkable astronomer called Fritz Wittgen, a Swiss-American guy. And he noticed that a cluster of galaxies, that's a collection of thousands of galaxies in the sky, all more or less at the same distance, and he was able to use measurements of the motions of these galaxies, which he measured by the Doppler shift using this spectrum of their light, um, was such that the galaxies should fly apart from each other, just like imagine a swarm of bees should basically move away and, and dissolve, and so the cluster shouldn't be there. And he said, well, something is keeping it together, and he inferred that 10 times more mass than could be seen in the stars was present, basically ensuring that the orbits of those galaxies just kept on turning back about themselves and they just did not depart, right? They were just attracted back to where they were by this dark matter that one couldn't see. And his realization that 10, 90% of the cluster was dark has been confirmed by much more detailed and just beautiful modern observations. So could dark matter be black holes? Well, um, let's see. So there are various possibilities for the dark matter. One of them would be black holes. These are probably not black holes made by collapsing stars, which is one way to make black holes, because if that were true, we would see these explosions, and we, we, we see some, but not nearly enough. Um, but they could be black holes left over from very early in the universe, so that certainly is one, you know, we call those primordial black holes, and so that's, that is certainly one, one possible explanation. Hmm. Uh, another possibility for the dark matter is that it's, some sort of very weakly interacting particle, uh, as yet undiscovered. A wimp. Uh, a weakly interacting massive particle, a wimp, that's right. 
Um, and these are um, certainly a candidate for the dark matter. So that's very different to ordinary matter? Yes. So the main difference is in their degree of interaction. So ordinary matter basically clusters and makes stars and planets like the Earth. But it, that's because um, ordinary matter might have a positive charge, if it's a proton or negative, if it's an electron. Those, those charges and also the nuclear forces that one finds inside the nuclei are rather strong forces. And they mean that atoms can collect together to make stars, for example, whereas if you have particles that have really weak interactions, then they just essentially pass through us and they essentially would reside in the outer parts of the galaxies where the dark matter is. And so our hypothesis is that the dark matter most plausibly consists of these weakly interacting elementary particles that we are still searching for and have not yet discovered. The main way you'd be able to detect these is by the mass would be the main property that they have? Well, exactly. The the mass and also the fact that when they run into each other, they occasionally would self-destruct and give you uh, x-rays, for example, or some some form of radiation one might hope to see. And so because the, the vast spaces of our galaxy are full of these dark particles, we have experiments in space now, special telescopes, X-ray telescopes, gamma-ray telescopes, that are looking for faint glows from the middle of nowhere that could be um, due to these dark matter particles running into each other and annihilating with each other. And are there also there's machos that astronomers are looking for as possible dark matter? Right. So, so what the dark matter could also be would be macroscopic objects such as black holes from the very early universe, leftover black holes, or even dark stars. And um, we call these massive compact objects. Macho is the acronym. Aha, uh-huh. so wimps and machos. Macho or wimp, okay. And, and these machos would be more or less the weight, have the mass of a star, or, or something between the mass of the Earth and the mass of a star. And so they're certainly a candidate that we have to try to, to verify its existence. And a group of Australian astronomers um, with UK colleagues, American American colleagues, worked out a very clever way to, to look for these using telescope that uh, was on Mount Stromlo for many, many years until it got destroyed in the fire of four years ago. And they built a gigantic camera with this telescope. And what they looked for, amazing experiment really, was they studied the large Magellanic cloud and they monitored millions of stars every night in the large Magellanic cloud. And whenever a macho went in front of one of these, which would happen, you know, every now and then had to happen if the machos were there, it would cause the light from one of these background stars to basically be magnified. Gravity does magnify light because it bends light just like a lens does. And so they would look for very occasional, very rare light changes. And they found... Uh, over six years of observation, some, some 10 or 20 events that they suggested were possible evidence for these machos. Mm. So, so it's a possibility, I would say. That's the final conclusion from their experiment. We can't rule this out. Wasn't there an observation a month or two ago where there was an astronomical object that was gravitationally lensed and it was doubled? And they went to look for what the large mass was in between that had bent the light and they couldn't see anything and this was possible evidence of dark matter. Right, so dark matter, when it's collected into an object like a galaxy, if you look at background objects, background galaxies, then the light from those passes through the dark matter, which is perfectly transparent, you can't see anything, um, but it does bend the light and magnifies it. 
And, and that results in having a double image, for example, of the background galaxy, this, this lensing effect. And this has been seen in various cases, and sometimes you simply find no evidence at all of the object that's doing the lensing, and you, and you assume, you deduce that it is indeed, uh, you know, there is this gravitational lens there, it's got to be something very dark indeed. So that's another way of trying to study or to show that dark matter exists. And there are cases of that now, several examples. Right. Are there any other ways we might be able to detect dark matter? So what one can imagine doing experiments which would um, use the fact that if the dark matter consists of many weak electric particles, that these actually pass through us, millions pass through our bodies every second, um, they leave almost, they don't interact at all essentially, but if you have a large enough detector, um, which might consist of some very sensitive um, detection device which could measure tiny, tiny amounts of heat deposited, um, then every now and then one of these particles would collide with atoms in this detector and leave a trace of heat behind. And so scientists are building giant experiments, large-scale experiments, deep underground to avoid the cosmic rays, which can cause spurious signals, looking for traces of heat from these dark matter particles. So, so far they've found nothing, but they believe that they simply have to build larger experiments to really test the hypothesis properly. It's early days yet. It's early days yet. And, of course, the, the, the other way um, this problem is being approached is using atom-smashing machines, such as the Large Hadron Collider, which is under construction in Geneva, um, a big European atom-smashing device, which will test our knowledge of elementary particles and basically by smashing protons into antiprotons. And indeed, if one can prove that every now and then when one has a high-energy event, um, this produces some incredibly weakly interacting particle, um, you see basically um, particles on one side of an event balanced what, what should be other particles if they were ordinary particles, but you see nothing. That is evidence of a very weakly interacting particle which would itself then be a candidate for the dark matter. That would be the same sort of particles that we conjecture might be the dark matter. So one of the goals of this experiment will be to look for this, for this evidence. That was Professor Joe Silk explaining the wimps and machos that make up the dark things in the universe. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. NASA, the American space agency, is sending humans to Mars. But they don't want to go alone. They want it to be an international cooperative effort because it's such a huge undertaking. It may be the most difficult thing humans have ever done. In order to do the most difficult thing humans have ever done, you need a lot of training. And before you can even start training you need to work out the curriculum. The man in charge of working out the curriculum for NASA is Dr. Pascal Lee, chairman of the Mars Institute, a planetary scientist with the SETI Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute and director of the Horton Mars Project at the NASA Ames Research Centre. This manned mission to Mars, what's the first step? Well, the first step is a commitment to send humans to Mars. And the... The undertaking, of course, is, is in some sense monumental, 
and probably beyond the reach of any single nation today. But on the other hand, I think the value of going to Mars is to do it together. Uh, it, it's the fact that you would be undertaking an exploration expedition in space uh, with a group of nations that are uh, wanting to commit to this kind of investment. Uh, it would be a technological investment, an incredible international cooperation throughout. And this is what it would take to achieve a human mission to Mars. So uh, it could bring everybody together. It could bring everybody together in a positive way, in a way that foster open exchange. It would help advance technologies and, and our know-how. It would advance our, our scientific understanding of the cosmos. It would engage universities and students throughout the world. And the beauty of it is that it could be essentially uh, the, the Apollo experience, but shared by a planet, really, in terms of its benefits and, and positive returns. So on the benefits and returns, this is the question I'm sure everybody asks you, why are we going to Mars? Well, you know, first of all, the given is that we are going to continue doing things in space. Mm-hmm. not an option for, for the spacefaring nations not to continue sending humans in space and having a, a substantial program that will cost them a substantial amount of their uh, gross national product. And the thing is, what do you do then, given that you have to maintain a presence in space and you're going to continue doing things in space. The reason why we need to continue doing things in space at all is because we have to maintain uh, a leadership uh, in, in technology, in, in our ability to travel in space, uh, in our overall industrial know-how. And so these are strategic importance to all the nations that are uh, spacefaring or have a space program. So with that as a given, the question then is, well, what do you do with this need to, to maintain uh, a presence and leadership in space? And a mission to Mars has the advantage of being very well defined. Certainly, it would represent a long-term commitment, possibly a decade or two of, of work together at the very least. And it would be very significant because it would be about advancing the frontiers of knowledge about life, the possibility of life on other planets. It would be a definitive a driver of uh, of creating new capabilities for space travel we would be we would have to create space travel systems that would um, allow us to be in space for longer times to go into space for greater distances it would really represent the logical step beyond going to the moon and i guess we don't get all those international cooperation benefits from just sending robots well that's right and the other thing is that robotic exploration serves a very good purpose. It answers short-term, immediate questions, if you will, that we might have about these planets uh, that we send robots to. But the issue of the search for life on Mars is a complex question. It's not something that is necessarily going to be well advanced by robotic exploration uh, for much longer. First of all, it's not just a matter of whether or not Mars might have life. Even if we found life on Mars today, what really is important is to understand what we have found. Is it terrestrial life that somehow was transferred from the Earth to Mars? Or is it somehow an ancestor of life on Earth that we might have found on Mars? In other words, we we could be finding life on Mars that is actually connected and related uh, genetically to life on Earth, given that Mars and the Earth are not isolated worlds. We we have meteorites, for example, that have come naturally from Mars to the Earth. They were blasted off of Mars by by asteroid and comets hitting Mars, uh, impacting Mars. And over time, rocks have been transferred from Mars to the Earth, and therefore possibly microbes uh, that would have been lodged inside these rocks. Uh, Similarly, uh, we might have had Earth rocks travel all the way to Mars and to other planets. So 
that's one of the big lessons, in fact, of uh, solar system exploration, uh, and that is that planets are not isolated systems. Uh, and therefore, if we found life on Mars, it's not uh, in itself that extraordinary a find. What would be extraordinary is if we found a form of life on Mars that is unrelated to life on, on Earth, something that would represent a, a separate genesis of life. And, and that is going to be something that's very difficult to, to both find and establish. And I have to view that we will need humans to be on Mars to, to really, well, first of all, search the planet and, and then investigate what is found. And that would be in itself a, a fantastic activity for humans on Mars. How long will it take us to get to Mars? It would take, uh, with the conventional existing uh, rocket technologies at this point, anywhere from six to nine months to get there. And then depending on the trajectory that you are taking, you might need to commit to a presence of either a month and a half or so, or a year and a half. And then you would come back to the Earth on another six to nine months journey. And so the total duration uh, of, a, of an expedition to Mars would be two and a half years. And in some sense, that sounds like a, a long time. And it certainly is for, for spacecraft mission, because you are needing to have spacecraft uh, technologies that are going to be reliable on that timescale. The space station, for example, is resupplied and, and repaired quite frequently, and it certainly is not left to its own devices for two and a half years without, without any repair. In order to create a spacecraft architecture that will allow you to go to Mars, you will have to really improve the reliability of the spacecraft system. And, and that in itself will be a tremendous technological leap for those nations that would undertake this. But the other thing is that two-and-a-half-year journey is not that long either. That's the other way to look at it, because it would be commensurate to what other exploring expeditions were, were committed to in the past, and it's certainly not something that uh, is beyond human capability to survive. And on that survival, how will the astronauts be protected against solar radiation in space? That's a good point. There are many specific hurdles that need to be understood and overcome in our endeavor to, to go to Mars. Space radiation is, is a central issue. We have to protect the astronauts from, from the damaging effects of long-term exposure to space radiation. Uh, there are solutions to this. Uh, number one, we can create within the spacecraft a, a particular sheltered area where astronauts would seek refuge in the case of a, of a particle storm or radiation storm that they might experience on their way to or from Mars. Another solution, which can be combined with the first one, is to surround the spacecraft with radiation-absorbing material. What turns out to be actually a very effective absorber of radiation is hydrogen, or anything that contains hydrogen. So water, for example, contains hydrogen, H2O, and food, carbohydrates, contain hydrogen. And, and so a good uh, practical solution, in fact, to, to shielding astronauts on their journey to Mars would be to store the water and the food that they will consume uh, along the walls of the spacecraft uh, in which they will be traveling in. And there's actually a sidebar that's interesting to this, to this particular approach, which is the fact that as you go through your mission and you consume your food, you would have to, to replace it with, with essentially what food becomes after it's processed by humans. And, and so over time, you would have to uh, continually be sure that you keep surrounding yourself with, with human waste along the walls of your spacecraft. And, and that, of course, will, will be an interesting experience for the astronauts. So these astronauts that go to Mars will have to be made of pretty strong stuff. How are they going to be selected? That's as well a good point. Uh, we cannot really plan on sending a very large group of people to Mars because it would really increase the cost of such a mission dramatically. Uh, so 
if you consider a crew that might be made of, say, eight people, there are many more skills that need to be covered on a two-and-a-half journey to Mars than, than eight people can normally cover. You have to have people who can fly the spacecraft, repair the spacecraft, repair spacesuits, be scientists who, to really understand geology and, and possibly microbiology of Mars. You would want people who can cook, who can be medical doctors, who can be communications experts and computer uh, systems administrators and repairmen. So there are really many skills that need to be covered on a human mission to Mars. And so the consequence of this is that the crew members will have to be thoroughly cross-trained in a number of disciplines. They'll have to be, in fact, not just jacks of all trades, but aces of all trades, of many trades. And this means that you are likely to have astronauts who are fairly seasoned people. Uh, during the Apollo program, the age of the moonwalker astronauts where it was uh, sort of the mid-30s. I would not be surprised if uh, when it came time to send humans to Mars, we'd be looking at crew members, at crews whose average age might be in, in, the, in the early 50s, just because it just takes that much time, even for smart people, to acquire experience and, and training in, in so many different fields and, and to, to become experts at them. And where are you training these people for the, this really harsh environment they're going to encounter in space and on Mars? So as far as training people, you'll have to look at different phases of the mission. There's the space flight phase as well itself, and you might consider training people on the International Space Station in Earth orbit so that they become experts at uh, repairing their spacecraft along the way to Mars or back. And then you will also have to train them to be experts at exploring the surface of Mars. And so... This is where the project that I've been working on really comes in, which is to, to find places on the Earth where we can really adequately train astronauts and, in fact, learn ourselves how to do productive Mars exploration on the ground. Uh, during the Moon program, we were on the Moon for very short stays, just a few days at a time. We were not driving very far away, even when we had a rover. Uh, as we contemplate this return to the Moon in the short term and, and our journeys to Mars beyond, we will be looking at several hundred stays on the Moon or Mars, during which we will want to venture out to distances of hundreds of kilometers, possibly, from our landing site. These types of excursions on the Moon or Mars will really be expeditions within an expedition, and it will be essential to train the crew members in how to conduct an expedition. A test pilot, for example, no matter how good a pilot this person is, is not necessarily uh, trained to, to lead an expedition on the ground you know, with a rover. These are a different set of skills that will require simply time for the crews to train on. And you've been training in the Arctic and the Antarctic for this sort of thing, I believe. Well, what the work that we do, we are not wanting to qualify it as training. We are really in the learning phases. We, we have been drawing lessons uh, from past expeditions, of course, and for, from our own over the years to define exactly what will be needed for the astronauts in the future. When I try to explain what my line of work is about, it, it's about imagining into the future what future explorers on the Moon and Mars will need, what they will need to be effective explorers, to be scientifically productive, to be safe at what they do. And of course, you can learn many lessons from, from past accounts of, of polar explorers, etc. But the truth is, exploring the Moon and Mars will require that kind of experience, plus an entire body of work that is specific about preparing for the Moon and Mars. And so all these lessons have yet to be learned, in fact, in, in a basic way for NASA and for all the other space agencies that are looking at going back to the Moon and Mars. So we're putting together essentially the curriculum, if you will, 
of what future astronauts will, will need to train on. Wonderful. I'm often asked the question, why do we spend so much money in space when there are so many problems to, to be worked on, on the Earth and, and to be solved? And I think the best answer to this question is that, first of all, the money is not spent in space. It's spent here on Earth in bettering ourselves, in our universities, in our factories, in creating new technologies and in becoming a better society and, and, uh, and a more technologically advanced society. Space is also presenting us with such a challenge that it, it almost forces us to be unified and collaborative in our approach to space exploration. I think as we look back, gone are the days or should be the days of competition in space. It, it's time that humanity comes together and uh, work together in, in what will take no less than that to explore Mars. And, and it's something that should be done for the benefit of all mankind and will be of benefit to all mankind if, if we undertake such a journey. So in a profound sense, it's a, it's a great investment in our future, and it will open new frontiers for, for human endeavors. Dr. Pascal Lee, thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Pascal Lee is chairman of the Mars Institute, a planetary scientist with the SETI Institute's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and director of the Horton Mars Project at the NASA Ames Research Centre. Listen next week for my interview with the CEO of Metacosmos about the launch of their new line of spacesuits. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule 
to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.